The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepker. Today we start with the Taliban, who have called for good ties with the United States just hours after the last American soldiers flew out of Kabul to end 20 years of war. But Zabihullah Mujahid, the Taliban's main spokesman, added that every occupier, in his words, would face the same fate as the Americans have faced. Meanwhile, here, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has talked about the new reality of Afghanistan under Taliban control. He shed some light on just how many people have been left behind in Afghanistan, but he admitted that he can't be definitive. Low hundreds, given that we've taken in total 5,000 out, and most of those are difficult cases where it's not clear around eligibility because they're undocumented. So the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab there, well, he was also forced to deny a US Pentagon leak suggesting that the US wanted to close a gate to Kabul airport ahead of last week's deadly bombing, but kept it open in order to assist the British evacuation. So Raab under pressure. Well, joining me now is Andrew R.T. Davies, who is the leader of the Welsh Conservatives and member of the Senate in Wales. Andrew, good to have you on the programme. Hello. On what really has been a very serious moment for Britain. In terms of Afghanistan, how do you feel about the withdrawal today? Well, good morning, Caroline, and thank you very much for having me on today. Uh, It is a moment to reflect on because it is of such size, this withdrawal from Afghanistan. It is a rebalancing of the world order, I would say. Uh, We know that there was a shift in power to the east, China in particular, uh, but it's notable that in the United Nations last night, Uh, Both China and Russia abstained on the resolution that France and the UK put forward, which was quite a bland resolution, to be honest with you. But even on that, they felt unable to obviously support the resolution. And I think that gives us a taste of maybe where the Taliban might find allies in the future. Yes. So this is the resolution um, to give Afghans who want to leave safe passage out of the country. Well, do you see this as a failure then of government in Westminster or do you blame the United States? Well, it's obvious to anyone who's looked at the makeup of the NATO alliance that without the Americans participating in an operation of the scale that Afghanistan was, Uh, that basically the rest of the partners in NATO would find it very difficult to carry on such an operation. And once, obviously, Trump had signed the agreement in Doha last year and Biden indicated that he was going to bring it forward uh, by the end of August of this year with all the withdrawal of the troops, irrespective of what the ground conditions were going to be facing the coalition forces, uh, it became impossible for the UK and indeed any of the other allied powers 
to obviously fulfil the mandate that NATO found itself trying to fulfil. Well, what happens um, to the people left behind? Dominic Raab, um, you know, only talked about uh, several hundred or a few hundred people being left behind in terms of British nationals who have the right to, you know, to return home. 123,000 people evacuated in a couple of weeks by the Americans, something like 15,000 flown to the UK, according to the BBC, 17,000, according to Dominic Raab. But those hundreds left behind, that is a serious disaster. Well, it is, to say the least, because uh, the the comments that you played at the top of the programme there about the Taliban saying any people who didn't fall into line with their beliefs and the way they want to run the country would find themselves uh, in very difficult circumstances in Afghanistan. And difficult circumstances in Afghanistan very often mean, regrettably, you lose your life. Um, but it is inevitable that once the Americans indicated they were pulling out, and I note the interview that President Biden had with ABC only a couple of weeks ago that said that if any Americans were left on the ground come the 31st of August, uh, American troops would stay till the last American had left. Um, even on that pledge, he's withdrawn that commitment. And obviously, as we know now, the Americans pulled out as of last night with several hundred American citizens still on the ground, as well as British and other foreign nationals. Uh, who now really find a very difficult situation before them. Uh, it is to be hoped that these corridors uh, to third countries, Pakistan, for example, or other countries that border Afghanistan, can be established as safe haven. But at the moment, that looks a very precarious route out of the country. And I bitterly regret that you know anyone who signed up to support the Allied efforts over the last 20 years finds themselves in this particular predicament at the moment. Um. Did Johnson, why did Johnson and Dominic Raab not plan better for the exit of British nationals or those, uh, you know, with the right to come to the UK, given that we knew about this for months and MPs are surely going to roast Dominic Raab on that very subject in the select committee? Well, that'll be for the work of the select committees to look at the preparation that government had put in place. I mean, I think obviously all the allies were caught um, caught very short on this by the speed with which the Americans decided to make the withdrawal happen, irrespective of whatever the ground conditions uh, were before them. And but, as I said earlier, but the Brits should have had an independent brain and an independent eye to this evolving crisis, surely, without being entirely dependent on the Americans. Well, it is a fact that nearly 10,000 Afghan citizens who have been helping the Allied effort in um, Afghanistan, in particular the UK effort, have already been repatriated or brought back to the United Kingdom for safe haven. Um, So there has been an exercise being undertaken by the UK government to obviously bring people out of Afghanistan. Uh, That has greatly speeded up over the last couple of weeks, but it is a fact that select committees in Westminster will want to know what preparations and what uh, safety measures were put in place uh, to try and make sure that every last one of the people who had been helping us as well as UK nationals did have a safe route out. And as things stand this morning, it doesn't look as if obviously all those citizens were able to do that. Should Wales, in your view, welcome refugees from Afghanistan um, as Scotland, for example, welcomed many, many Syrian refugees? What's your view on that? Well, it is a fact that councils across the United Kingdom, because we are one country, one United Kingdom, and whether that be Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland or England, 
are doing all they can to work with national government to create safe places for people to establish a new life coming out of Afghanistan. Because this isn't just about the here and now. This is going to be a commitment that is going to run for years into the future, from education to health provision to housing, and make sure that integration happens successfully. Um, and I know of many councils, Monmouthshire, for example, is a good example uh, here in Wales, which has obviously been working tirelessly 24-7 to make sure those preparations are in place. Okay. So that on Afghanistan and uh, the number of migrants that we may well see arriving here in the UK, or as many of whom have already arrived. Um, I also, um, Andrew, want to talk a bit about COVID. Um, just a reminder, we're speaking to uh, Andrew Archie Davies. Uh, your party's called for a COVID inquiry in Wales. Tell us about what you want and also the reaction to that call from the First Minister, Mark Drakeford. Well, as we all know, over the last 15, 16 months, some massive decisions have been taken by all governments across the United Kingdom, both on a unified basis, i.e. at the United Kingdom level, but at a devolved level of government here in Wales, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland. Um, there have been specific measures taken that only affect people in those various areas that the parliaments and governments have jurisdiction over. And at the moment, here in Wales, the First Minister is refusing to have an independent public inquiry into the whole response to COVID. Regrettably, in Wales, we have the highest death rate of any part of the United Kingdom. And despite the Herculean efforts of many people on the ground in public service and every man, woman and child here in Wales, there are still so many questions to be tested and answered uh, by such a public inquiry. But regrettably, the First Minister is refusing to bring forward such a public inquiry. Um, and we had a vote in the Welsh Parliament just before we broke the summer recess where all but one of the opposition parties uh, faced up to the government on this particular issue. Regrettably, the Liberal Democrats chose not to support the motion that was calling for the public inquiry. Those calls have been greatly strengthened now by the actions of Nicola Sturgeon, because the First Minister here in Wales, the Labour First Minister in Wales, was hiding behind the mask of, well, there's going to be a UK inquiry, all matters will be dealt with by that. Mm. Um, and so now with Scotland launching its own public inquiry, it is now vital that we gain the momentum going into the new parliamentary term to bring the Welsh Government to the table and actually commission a Welsh public inquiry that is independent of the politicians to look at all the actions that have happened and make sure that we're prepared for any future pandemic and hold people to account. Well, speaking of Scotland, though, uh, Scotland was... I'll say crowing about, you know, perhaps having done better, handled the pandemic in some ways better than England. Wales has done that to some extent too, but Scotland now sees a resurgence of COVID-19 cases. Has Wales handled the pandemic significantly better than England and Scotland? Well, I think we all know that there have been challenges and to uh, show where devolved government can work and work effectively for people uh, and what we found in Wales is we've had a very successful vaccination rollout thanks to the UK government's procuring and getting early to get the vaccination doses for the whole of the UK. But regrettably, there are many instances you can point to where Welsh government have been slow, like the release of paid patients uh, from hospitals into care homes and the testing of those patients before they went into care homes and two weeks later than other parts of the United Kingdom instigated testing. And when we went into the second lockdown, regrettably, we had a far higher mortality rate here in Wales than other parts of the United Kingdom. So there have been successes, but equally there have been real challenges that do mm. need to be tested at a public inquiry. And 
quite right to point to Scotland. It was only this time last year that Nicola Sturgeon was crowing about how the Scottish government had managed to all but eradicate COVID from Scotland, I think were her words in August of last year. Well, regrettably, we're now seeing in Scotland a big surge and a big spike, but it is to be reflected on that obviously Scottish schools go back far sooner than other schools in the rest of the United Kingdom. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. What is preoccupying the world of politics? Well, the energy regulator Ofgem has opened a £450 million fund to encourage innovation that can help the UK reach its climate change ambitions. The UK has committed to becoming net zero by 2050, which means cutting greenhouse gas emissions so much that the country then absorbs as much as it emits. So this money can be used for green projects to address major changes that are needed in terms of heating, transportation, data and digitalizations. with all these needing large-scale measures to reach Britain's green goals. Meanwhile, the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, has set out details of an £8.6 billion funding package to build new homes, saying that owning a home will become a realistic and affordable goal for thousands more families. The money is expected to deliver around 119,000 homes in England, with about half expected to be sold and the rest billed to rent at a discounted rate. And lastly, the government has announced an extra £2.7 million of funding for additional mental health support for veterans, part of Operation Courage. It comes as the British military presence in Afghanistan has come to an end. The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, acknowledged that many more of those who served there experienced things that they will never forget. Now let's continue the conversation around Afghanistan because after 20 years the final Western troops have now left. The Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab will face a host of angry MPs at a select committee all keen to dig into his conduct and the decisions during the crisis and evacuation with Raab telling media outlets this morning that the number of British citizens who did not make it out is in the low hundreds. The former Conservative Defence and Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkin, speaking to Bloomberg today, says that this new Taliban regime, though, may be different from 20 years ago. What we have to await, and it's going to happen in days, not weeks, is the creation of a Taliban government, a proper government, which will then be able to take decisions which it will be able to enforce. There's a lot of speculation at the moment, and it's only speculation, whether the Taliban have changed significantly compared to 20 years ago. Like everybody else, I'm very skeptical about that. But there are some indications that that's what they are intending to do, that they recognize that uh, Afghanistan cannot be governed in the way they tried to govern it uh, 20 years uh, ago. So, a sceptical Malcolm Rifkin speaking to Bloomberg. Well, joining me now is Dr. James Caron, who is lecturer in Islamicate South Asia at SOAS at the University of London. Uh, Dr. Caron, welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining me. 
And this is the great question, isn't it, when it comes to Afghanistan now? What will this Taliban government or rule actually look like? You're an expert in the field. What do you expect? I'm not sure that any of us really know what to expect. I mean, this is what all of my colleagues and myself have been talking about for a good while now. Um, On the one hand, I mean, the Taliban have a need to, uh, as as Malcolm Rifkin was saying, you know, they they have a, they have never been, uh, you know, a state for the last twenty years. Instead, they've uh, focused all of their efforts on building a military organization. Um, I think that within the Taliban leadership, there's a recognition that, I mean, they need to create a state at this point, and there's a lot of indications that they're very eager to assimilate all of the bureaucrats who have staffed all of the new state institutions over the past 20 years, and um, sort of mm. skilled technical professionals as well. And I think that there's a sense that um, they cannot afford to alienate them. Well, um, and this right. is a great question also, isn't it, for engagement um, from the West with this new government, whatever form it takes. What do you think should be the parameters around whether countries like the UK and the US recognise the Taliban government and therefore engage with them? I'm not sure that... um, I don't think that recognising the Taliban government uh, is something that can or should happen. I mean, not for a couple of years, you know. Um, This, as I say, this whole thing is really... You know, quite ambiguous right now as to how it'll turn out. The one thing that I can say is that, I mean, I think that the behavior of the, the Taliban government, uh, as it is, is going to depend on what the rest of the world does on a practical level, um, as well as a formal diplomatic one. And by that, I suppose you mean financial and perhaps humanitarian. The country, Afghanistan, has been largely reliant on foreign aid now for for so long. Um, You know, already there are signs that the economy is suffering from this and and therefore that you could have people going hungry, millions of of Afghans uh, going hungry as a result. That is a huge challenge for any, you know, incoming... uh, government or, or, or ruling organization? Uh, that's right. I mean, Afghanistan is facing one of the most severe droughts in recent memory. And um, currently, this, you know, much of the state treasury's assets are frozen. Uh, the Taliban have other sources of revenue. Um, but, uh, for instance, there's been at least some talk of sanctions, which uh, more or less all of the you know, my expert colleagues that I've been speaking to think is a terrible idea. Um, Part of the reason why that would be a terrible idea, not only is the economic impact, but um, as things stand right now, uh, it seems like um, potentially vulnerable people have, you know, still got some some pathways to leave. So, for instance, um, the Taliban have announced that, and so has Pakistan, that anybody with like valid papers, uh, like a valid visa for a third country, or anybody with uh, UNHCR links, the um, the UN High Commission on Refugees, mm-hmm. uh, any links to that, uh, will be allowed to pass the border safely. Uh, in other words, like bypassing the UN resolution entirely, 
um, you know, this is something that as it stands right now is in place. If sanctions or other such, uh, any other sort of coercive measures are leveled, I mean, I, I kind of think that the, the Taliban would figure that they've got nothing to lose. I mean, they're, you know, they're angling for international respectability and they're angling for um, a continuance of, you know, various forms of aid and um, and, and things like that, which in, in order to forestall the same economic crisis that we also want to, to not see happen. How much influence will China, Russia and Qatar have uh, over the Taliban? How do you see their role? I mean... China has a potential to have quite a bit of influence. Um, they've maintained uh, slightly stronger diplomatic ties to the Taliban, you know, throughout this period. Um, and they recently made a deal with the Ashraf Ghani outgoing government about um, extending their Belt and Road Initiative from Pakistan into Afghanistan. And that would involve uh, significant government loans to, I mean, uh, significant loans to Afghanistan, and there are indications that China would like that to continue. On the other hand, I don't think that they're practically going to be investing that much in Afghan infrastructure, uh, at least not anytime soon. I'm not sure that anybody really has that much um, influence over the Taliban right now, and again, that's probably uh, uh, not even Pakistan, despite what um, what is commonly sort of believed. And, I mean, I think that the degree to which that influence changes will, you know, be directly related to how these countries engage with the, the Taliban government. And I'd suppose also the other issue, you know, when one discusses influence over the Taliban or what they do in Afghanistan, it's it's the issue around terrorism, which remains the primary Western concern despite the withdrawal of troops. Um what is your uh, view on on terrorism? I mean, we've already seen a deadly attack at Kabul airport. Can we only expect that to rise again? I, I'm, I'm just not sure about this. I mean, the Islamic State in Afghanistan has been at odds with the Taliban for years now. And I think that the Taliban have as much stake in consolidating their own um, their own power. I don't think, uh, and thereby sort of attacking and trying to, you know, limit the activities of such bodies rather than host them. I also don't think that the Taliban is likely to make links with um, other global organizations the same ways that it did in in the 1990s, uh, not in the current scenario. So, I mean, from one perspective, like, I think that's encouraging just in that field alone, on the other hand, I mean, we will have, you know, Western countries will have significantly decreased capabilities to try and, you know, figure out what's going on, uh, separate from what the Taliban tell us. Part of the reason is that with the recent um, door-to-door searches of, you know, people who formerly worked with the government and with Western institutions, the Taliban since 2010 have been developing their intelligence capabilities to an extraordinary degree. That includes, you know, electronic and other intelligence, but primarily it's human intelligence. With the pullout of troops, that would have been the only thing that Western countries really had left. Um, and there's every sign that the Taliban are, are, you know, sort of absorbing or neutralizing 
human intelligence that Western countries had relied on. And so, in short, we're not really going to have you know, good picture for, for quite a while. And when we do, we'll probably be relying on Pakistani intelligence. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.